Hi everyone, thanks for listening to the Scandinavian History Podcast with me, Michael Schenkman. Last time, Christian thought he'd gotten rid of Karl Knutsson, the man who had declared himself king of Sweden. But then, the self-made monarch returned only to be ousted again within six months. We left the Swedes and the Union king at a standoff. The Swedes were willing to take Christian back if he'd just agreed to hand back some powers to them. The king refused, thinking he held the better hand, and if he'd just wait a little, the Swedes would have to cave and accept to take him back, on his terms. Because surely, it's not viable in the long run not to have a king. Today, we'll see how good of a political prognosticator King Christian turned out to be. Spoiler alert, not a very good one. Episode 65, A Kingdom Without a King. When we left off last time, the Archbishop of Sweden was the steward of the realm, meaning that he controlled not only the church in Sweden, but also the secular power as well. Except for a few, but important, places, like the castles in Kalmar and Elfsborg, which were held by men loyal to King Christian. In early 1466, there was yet another round of negotiations between the Swedish nobles and their counterparts in Denmark and Norway to try and bring about a reconciliation with King Christian. The Swedish nobles living in the border region were eager to settle the issue and rejoin the Kalmar Union fully again, but those from further north, that is the Stockholm and Uppsala area, basically the old land of the Swedes, were less enthusiastic. To complicate things further, the border nobility had connections to Karl Knutsson, whereas the northerners were closer to the archbishop and the Oxenstierna family. So beyond the economic aspect, there was also the old rivalry between the two Swedish noble camps playing a part. The talks didn't really lead anywhere, but then in the fall of 1466 there was a promising development in the higher echelons of Swedish politics. The border nobles managed to get rid of the archbishop as steward of the realm and replaced him with one of their own. That meant that the Oxenstierna camp had lost control over the council to the border nobles, who wanted first to control Sweden, then to invite Christian back as king, but a significantly weakened king reigning on their terms. Alternatively, if Christian insisted on being difficult, they were willing to entertain the idea of bringing Karl Knutsson back as king for a third time, but this time as the puppet of the border nobles. Since that would have hurt their financial interests in Denmark, it's likely they didn't really want Karl Knutsson back. Instead, they thought, or at least hoped, that the mere threat of a return of King Karl would make Christian more willing to compromise. But high politics is a complicated game, and sometimes there's no knowing how things will develop. The reason things became complicated this time was that the nobles on the council had once again ignored the peasants, treating them as politically irrelevant. And once again, this would prove to be a mistake. Much like last time, the mere rumor that Karl Knutsson may return to save them from a foreign king managed to yet again stir the peasants in central Sweden into action. A bit like Engelbrecht Engelbrechtsson in his day, a charismatic nobleman succeeded in channeling the near-perpetual unhappiness of the peasants, and he gathered a force in Dalarna, because where else? He led them to Vesteros, where they took the castle. Then, on November 1st, they published an official demand for the return of the king, Karl Knutsson that is, to Sweden. 
The demand was supposedly supported by wide circles on the, of the common people, both in the countryside and among the townspeople in central and northern Sweden. This was bad news for both camps of nobles, because they lost the initiative and the ability to steer events. And besides, no one really wanted Karl Knutsson back, not even the border nobles who claimed they did for tactical purposes. For obvious reasons, the rebellion and the demand to bring Karl Knutsson back angered King Christian. He thought he'd gotten rid of his pesky Swedish rival already in the last episode and wasn't interested in hearing about him anymore. So when people were now openly clamoring to get Karl Knutsson back, Christian blamed the border nobles, who had been the first to raise the possibility. This led to the breakdown of the king's relations with the Swedish border nobles, his potentially strongest allies in Sweden. Instead, in a surprise turn of events that should have given all spectators whiplash, Christian and his Swedish enemy number one, the Archbishop of Uppsala, found themselves on the same side, opposing Karl Knutsson. And since your enemy's enemy is your friend, the king and the archbishop started to plan for an attack on the border nobles and their new steward. A formal declaration of a feud was issued in May 1467, and Christian initiated a trade blockade against Sweden. But either the feud had been poorly planned, or the archbishop had overestimated his popular support, because he was soon forced to leave Uppsala and relocate to Öland, an island close to Kalmar, controlled by men loyal to King Christian. But even though the archbishop had left, fighting still persisted between the supporters of Karl Knutsson and King Christian. Christian also attacked positions held by the Swedish border nobles in southern Scandinavia, both in Sweden and in Denmark, as punishment for their disloyalty. But in the end, the border nobles, backed by the rebellious peasants' force from Dalarna, won the day and the archbishop and the Oxenstiernas lost. Karl Knutsen was once again called upon to return as king of Sweden on September 21, 1467, and he arrived back in Sweden in November that year. This time, his support was broader than it had been three years before. Faced with the political reality, even the Oxenstierna camp rallied behind him on condition that he'd not punish them for their previous opposition to him. Their wealth fuss may have been facilitated by the fact that their leader, the archbishop, died on December 15, 1467, less than a month after Karl Knutsson's return. So there he was, Karl Knutsson, king again for the third time. He must have been pleased when he celebrated Christmas 1467 back on the Swedish throne. But of course, the story didn't end there. Karl Knutsson's return didn't actually solve anything. It didn't mean that Christian gave up his claim to the Swedish crown. No. What yet again followed was years of alternating fighting and negotiations between Karl Knutsson and Christian, all of it without changing the status quo in any discernible way. But even though Christian's efforts to win back Sweden didn't get anywhere, he was able to exploit his conflict with the Swedes in order to strengthen his own position in Denmark, making it perfectly clear that rebellious nobles would be dealt with swiftly and harshly. This was a message openly addressed against the Swedes, but you didn't have to be too skilled in reading between the lines to understand that the king meant Danish nobles as well. In October 1468, Christian called the first meeting of what Danish historians traditionally have considered the first meeting of the Estates of Denmark. It took place in Kallenborg in northwest Zealand, the island where Copenhagen is situated. Not only the highest-ranking church officials and nobles were summoned, but also representatives from the cities and even two peasants from each parish. 
Whether they actually showed up or not is unclear, but the very invitation shows that Christian wanted people at the meeting to back up his new policies that were directed against the nobility, and that was meant to strengthen the king and the royal finances. At the meeting, the leading Danish aristocratic families were pushed back in favor of minor nobles who would owe their new lands and positions directly to the king, and who were encouraged not to forget it. Some, but not all, of the higher nobles whose lands were confiscated belonged to the border nobility that had sided with Karl Knutsson in the conflict with Sweden. The following year, fighting resumed in Sweden, with the two sides clashing repeatedly in various locations. I won't go into too many details, because they're not particularly interesting, and they don't really matter. I'll just mention the capture of Axeval Castle in Vestrogossia by a peasant force in July 1469. These peasants took it, burnt it, killed everyone inside, and completely destroyed the castle, one of the strongest in the region, and one that had withstood several sieges in the past. The fact that a peasant force could take and destroy a castle this strong sent shockwaves throughout the elites in both Sweden and in Denmark. These castles were key to ruling Scandinavia, where the king's representative would command a castle, and from it he'd control the surrounding region collect taxes, and keep the peace in the name of the king. Castles were sources of income and strongholds to keep soldiers. That meant that peasants usually didn't like castles, and they definitely didn't like living close to one. Castles were both sources and magnets for trouble. When things were normal, meaning there wasn't a war going on, living too close to the seat of power was a clear disadvantage in an age where resources and aid tended to flow in one direction only upwards, from the people to the crown. Since the royal control was strongest in the vicinity of the castles, the taxman was at his most efficient there, and the risk of being forced to help construction work at the castle was highest if you lived close to it. In times of war, castles attracted enemy armies, and when they besieged a castle, they would typically live off the land surrounding the castle, forcing the local peasants to fork over what little surplus they had in terms of food and other supplies. And sometimes they weren't satisfied with just taking the surplus. Not to mention what would happen if the besieging army wasn't successful and the castle didn't fall. More often than not, the frustrated enemy would then take it out on the local peasants. So there were a lot of drawbacks and not enough benefits to outweigh them. You couldn't even go on a guided tour of your local castle on Sundays or bank holidays. The nobility wasn't oblivious to these sentiments, and if peasants could take and destroy castles, that meant that they could free themselves from royal power at will. That was a scary thought for anyone who enjoyed life behind castle walls. Attacking castles was nothing new, of course. Engelbrecht Engelbrechtson and his merry men of rebels had done so in the 1430s, but Axeval wasn't just any castle, it was one of the strongest in Sweden. If it could fall, almost any castle could fall. But apart from the storming and destruction of Axeval Castle, nothing really noteworthy or consequential happened. The fighting, interspersed with negotiations directed by this or that group of nobles, or the Hanseatic League, might have continued for no one knows how long, if Karl Knutsson hadn't died in Stockholm on May 15, 1470. He died as King of Sweden, sometimes known as Karl VIII. He'd started his career as an ambitious man within the Kalmar Union, but circumstances led him to be one of its first undertakers. When he realized he could be king, but only of Sweden, 
that became his life's goal. Showing by his actions that this was an attainable goal, Carl Knutsson became a role model for later Swedish leaders who would strive to break up the Kalmar Union and re-establish an independent Swedish kingdom. One of these leaders was his nephew Sten of the Sture family, who also happened to be present at Carl Knutsson's deathbed that May Day in Stockholm. The dying king made Sten Sture the executor of his last will and testament. Sten Sture was not, however, the prime benefactor of Carl Knutsson's will. That was instead the old king's son, who had been born out of wedlock, but who Carl Knutsson had legitimized by marrying his mother late in life. But in the end, it didn't matter. The boy would be outmaneuvered, cheated of much of his inheritance, and it was instead Sten Sture who would be the figure looming the largest in Swedish politics following Karl Knutsson's death, and for many years to come. Already a few weeks after Karl Knutsson's death, Sten Sture styled himself as steward of the realm. He was approximately 30 years old at the time. Even though he belonged to a, the very creme de la creme of the Swedish nobility, he'd made a name for himself only during the last year's fighting, when he'd been a commander in Karl Knutsson's army. He'd also made a strategic match, marrying into one of the most important families in the border nobility. The new steward didn't get to uninterruptedly bask in the glory of his fancy title for long, though. The fighting with both the Oxenstierna camp and the Danes flared up again soon after the news of Karl Knutsen's death started to spread. Luckily for Stensture, King Christian was busy with trouble in Schleswig, so the Danish king couldn't focus all his attention not to mention his military might on Sweden. That meant that Sten Sture could focus all of his attention on staving off the attack on Stockholm, organized by the Oxenstierners. After that, the seemingly never-ending mix of sporadic fighting interspersed with diplomatic efforts continued with mind-numbing regularity and little or no progress for either side. The death of Karl Knutsson and the elevation of Sten Sture didn't make much of a difference on that score. There was perhaps one significant difference, though, and that was that the new archbishop, who was from the Oxenstierna camp, but not their family, was far more willing to accept the return of King Christian to the Swedish throne, and worked hard to achieve a peaceful solution to that end. In the summer of 1471, it looked like a deal of that nature was closer than ever, and that set off alarm bells in Stockholm. Stensture realized that such a deal would be catastrophic for him and his ambitions to rule Sweden, so he decided to act. In mid-August, he left Stockholm and traveled to Arboga and Vastena, drumming up support for a military solution and recruiting troops to evict the Danish army and King Christian, who had personally come to Stockholm to throw his weight around in the negotiations. When Christian heard what Sten Sture was up to, he decided he had to act as well if he didn't want this chance to retrieve his Swedish crown to slip through his fingers. Christian called the Swedish estates to a meeting in Stockholm where he hoped to force the issue and make them elect him king of Sweden again. But unfortunately for the king, so few representatives actually showed up that he realized no decision of theirs would be legitimate. So instead, Christian called a thing in Uppsala, and there he more or less made the people who showed up proclaim him king of Sweden. Afterwards, he returned to Stockholm and ordered the beefing up of the defensive positions north of the city on a ridge called Brunkeberg. The spot was chosen well. The ridge was a dominating geographical feature in the landscape north of Stockholm, and there were few farms or other houses here, creating a space suitable for a battle. All the while, 
Stensture was gathering his forces, and troops led by various Swedish nobles were approaching the Stockholm area from all directions in the first half of October. Everyone was getting ready for a showdown. October 10th, 1471, was an unseasonably warm and sunny day in Stockholm. The Swedish forces under Stensture had converged and were now approaching the Brunkeberg Ridge north of the city. Here, Christian had placed his troops behind the strong fortified position they'd been busy building lately. The Danish position was strong. They had cannon and a fair number of mounted knights, both Danish and Swedish nobles. But the force was relatively small, a few thousand men at most, and the cavalry was of limited use on this uneven terrain on the ridge. In addition, the king's troops had a tricky task ahead of them. They needed to block the entry to the city so that Stensture wouldn't reach Stockholm, and at the same time they needed to make sure that the Swedish forces inside the city didn't send out any sailing parties that may try to aid Stensture. They also needed to keep the passage open to the Danish ships anchored in the bay below the ridge, in case they would have to retreat. We don't know exactly how large the force under Stensture's command was that approached from the northwest in the morning, but five to six thousand men seems plausible, making it at least double, maybe three times as large as the force commanded by Christian. The bulk of Stensture's soldiers were regular peasants, who didn't have either banners or uniforms, so they stuck twigs and straw in their hats and on their clothes to make themselves distinguishable from the enemy. Stensture himself flew a banner depicting St. George killing the dragon. Soon battle was joined. We have a detailed, albeit not particularly reliable, depiction of the fighting in the so-called Sture Chronicle. As the name suggests, it's a piece of unashamed propaganda depicting Stensture as the valiant St. George, God's chosen one, fighting the evil tyrant from Denmark. If the chronicle is to be believed, which it isn't, both Christ and St. Eric made appearances during the battle, showing their support for the Swedes. On the other hand, an equally unreliable Danish chronicle claims the Swedes, and more specifically Karl Knudsen's old chancellor, exploited his connections with the devil to use black magic against the good and valiant Danes. The fiercest fighting took place close to a convent dedicated to St. Clara, there, Stensture led an attack against Christian's forces at the same time as troops from within the city managed to sally out to attack from the rear. The fighting around the convent went on for two intense hours. According to the Sture Chronicle, King Christian himself was hit by a bullet in the mouth during the fighting there, and that part may actually be true, because scholars who've opened the king's grave have been able to conclude that he lacked three front teeth. I don't know if it was the hit to the teeth or not, but after a while Christian ordered a retreat to the ships. His forces started to withdraw out an island from which they'd be able to board the warships that were waiting on the bay. But in what must have been a quite dramatic scene, too many people crowded the bridge out to the island at the same time, so it collapsed. After the fact, some Stockholm burghers bragged that they had cut off the wooden support columns holding up the bridge, but it's just as likely that too many of the Danish soldiers just tried to get over this at the same time, causing the structure to collapse. King Christian himself did manage to escape to safety on board one of the ships, 
but several of the noblemen, both Danes and Swedes, who had fought for him, weren't as lucky. They were instead captured by Stensturis' forces after their retreat had been cut off by the collapsing bridge. Even less lucky were the soldiers who fell in the battle. Some sources speak of casualties numbering up to 2,000, but that seems like a bit of an exaggeration. After the fact, the battle at Brunkeberg has been seen as the end to a Scandinavian civil war, fought mostly within the borders of Sweden, with Danes and Swedes fighting on both sides. Despite its importance, if you visit the battlefield today, which you can easily do next time you're in Stockholm, you'll find that Brunkeberg Square, where the fiercest fighting took place, and Christian supposedly took a hit to the face, is a rather uninspiring lawn crammed in between dull mid-20th century office buildings. If you want to see an interesting monument commemorating the battle at Brunkeberg, you need to go to Stockholm Cathedral, where you can see a statue of St. George killing the dragon, symbolizing Denmark, and a fair maiden, symbolizing Sweden, kneeling in prayer, watching the scene. Within days of the battle and King Christian's retreat, Stensture was hard at work trying to shape the image of the battle. In a proclamation, it was made known that the battle had been won against the enemies of Sweden, despite plenty of Swedish nobles and peasants fighting on both sides. To stress this narrative, the city law of Stockholm was changed, banning foreigners from holding office in the city from now on. The decision was also meant as a thank you to the Swedish burghers who had aided Stensture, and a punishment of the German merchants and the Hanseatic League who had supported Christian and upheld his trading blockade against Sweden. The Swedish noblemen who had fought with Christian and had been taken prisoner at the end of the battle were robbed of their commands and governorships, but they were allowed to keep their private land and property. The ones who had been members of the Swedish council before the fighting had started were even allowed to keep their seats there. Unlike Karl Knutsson, Stensture was clearly not the vindictive kind. Still, commands over castles and governorships of regions were now distributed among Stensture's allies and relatives, further strengthening the new steward's position. Mindful of the frequent peasant rebellions that had plagued Sweden for several decades, Stensture also made sure not to introduce any new or extraordinary taxes. That made the peasants happy and the stewards popular. If the crown needed extra funds, Stensture preferred to provide the money himself from his own private coffers. But don't be too impressed by his largesse. He also had a tendency to view the crown's money as his private slush fund, mixing the two sources of income as it pleased him. In addition, his private business methods were highly unethical, and he didn't hesitate to put the weight of the crown behind his own personal financial dealings when it suited him. But that didn't necessarily put him apart from most of his contemporaries, or other people in power throughout the ages, our own included. So there you have it. Following the battle at Brunkeberg, a new sort of reality started to settle in. Even though few, if any, of the people who had participated in the battle actually wanted to break up the Kalmar Union, it now started to seem increasingly probable that the old union would never be re-established. Stensture was both strong and popular, showing no interest in giving up his role as steward to give Christian back his crown he'd failed to take by force. And if the re-establishment of the Kalmar Union wasn't in the cards at the moment, Denmark and Sweden needed to find another way to relate to each other. To achieve that, 
representatives for the nobility in Sweden and Denmark met in Kalmar in the summer of 1472. The goal was peace and to normalize the relations between the two kingdoms. At this point, it was treated as a foregone conclusion that the Norwegians would go along with whatever the Danes decided. The ultimate aim for the Danish delegation may have been to re-establish the Union, and even though the Swedes weren't willing to go that far at this point, they were very interested in achieving peace and quiet between the two countries, since the border nobles were strong in Stensture's camp. Kalmar, the place where the Union had been established, would see many high-level meetings of this kind in the coming years. Sometimes Norwegians and Hansa representatives were invited to these affairs, but usually it was just the Danes and the Swedes who met. Kalmar was convenient, since it was situated along the Swedish coast, close to the Danish border, and the city didn't only have a good harbour, but also plenty of housing opportunities for visitors who demanded a certain standard of living. For meetings where Norwegians were also invited, a location on the west coast, usually Halmstad, was preferred instead. The 1472 meeting in Kalmar resulted in a decision on July 2nd where it was agreed that all confiscated private property was to be returned to its owners. There would be peace and the borders between the three kingdoms would be open for all. You'd be able to manage your estates in all three kingdoms and cross the border for work or trade. If you were sentenced to outlawry in one country, you'd be an outlaw in all three. The three kingdoms promised that they would aid each other if one was attacked by external enemies or rocked by internal rebellions. So basically, many of the principles of the Kalmar Union were restored. But the Swedish delegation balked at the suggestion that Christian should be allowed to reclaim his Swedish crown, so Sweden remained under the rule of the steward. Still, Christian wasn't willing to give up. So the following year, when the delegations from the two countries met again in Kalmar, the Danes had been instructed to try and convince the Swedes to take Christian back with a tempting offer. Take the king back, and we might return Gotland to you. Maybe even Scania. That last bit was more of a theoretical promise, though, since the powerful Scanian nobility didn't want to become Swedes. But the Swedes didn't take the bait anyway. The truth was that even though many of the Swedish nobles would have been happy to re-establish the Kalmar Union, they were starting to get used to living without a king. The high nobility was running the show in the absence of a monarch, and they rather liked being in charge. If they were going to accept to submit to a king again, that king would have to offer them a pretty sweet deal, where they'd be allowed to keep a lot of the powers that they were currently wielding. Even though we don't know for sure, it may be that Stensture himself belonged to that camp. Maybe he would have been willing to hand authority back to King Christian if the conditions of the deal would have been suitably favourable to the steward. After all, even though he clearly enjoyed being in charge, he never did try to claim the title of king for himself, like Karl Knudsen had done. So Stensture kept all the options on the table. On the one hand, he never closed the door on the possibility of accepting the return of Christian, but at the same time, he kept up the anti-foreign propaganda, preparing the ground for a favourable deal if serious negotiations would ever get going. And in 1476, after yet another high-level meeting in Kalmar, Swedes and Danes actually agreed on terms for Christian to reclaim his Swedish crown. It was an agreement that severely curtailed the king's power in Sweden and strengthened the high nobility. 
In other words, it was a victory for the Swedish delegation. Nonetheless, Christian was willing to accept it. But, in a surprise turn of events, when the Swedish estates met the following year to ratify the agreement to officially re-establish the Kalmar Union, the agreement that the Swedish high nobility and the king had reached was rejected by the burghers of Stockholm and a number of other merchant cities, as well as by delegations of peasants from various parts of the country. It was a bombshell. The nobility was caught completely off guard. Most likely, Stensture had been busy convincing the burghers and the peasants to reject Christian. If the steward hadn't been involved directly, the anti-Danish propaganda he'd been spreading in the last years surely played a part in the rejection. I don't know how Christian reacted when he learned that the Swedes had rejected the deal he himself must have felt was a humiliating and far-reaching, maybe even too far-reaching compromise. It's probably safe to assume that he wasn't happy about it. He didn't resume open war though. Maybe he didn't think he'd be able to raise an army big enough to conquer Sweden. Or maybe he hadn't given up hope that he'd be able to win the country over by other means. Speaking of other means, Christians did send a delegation to Rome to ask the Pope to excommunicate Stensture, officially for not having honored his financial obligations to the Dowager Queen Dorothea, but it's not too hard to imagine he might have had a more personal reason to demand the excommunication of the Swedish steward. The Pope was convinced and excommunicated Stensture, prompting the steward to send a delegation of his own to Rome that managed to convince the Pope to lift the excommunication. At this point, Christian may have considered restarting the war against Sweden, but that didn't happen because in 1481 he died at the age of 55. He never did manage to reclaim his Swedish crown. Christian's death presented an interesting opportunity to solve the conflict between Denmark and Sweden. Because for the first time in the history of the Kalmar Union, there was a clear and recognized heir to all three kingdoms. As I mentioned last time, Christian's son, John, had been recognized as the heir to all three kingdoms already more than 20 years ago. But that was 20 years ago, when Christian had still been king of Sweden. Under the current circumstances, the Swedes weren't willing to automatically honor their recognition of John as king of Sweden. So new negotiations started. These were complicated negotiations between John and the three councils on the one hand, and another level of negotiations on a pan-union level. Tune in next time to find out how things went for King John. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Scandinavian History Podcast. If you did, why not spread the word wherever you congregate with others who are into Scandinavian history? Also, please consider leaving a stellar review, or at least five stars, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. This is an excellent way to attract new listeners and to support the show. Another good way to support the show is to purchase some Scandinavian history-themed merch in the Scandinavian History Podcast webshop. I especially recommend something from the Odin's Lifehack collection. It's a line of merch with quotes from Hovamal, accredited to the King of the Gods. You can get t-shirts, mugs, tote bags, and many other items with nuggets of Scandinavian wisdom, such as wake up early if you want another man's land or life, only fools hope to live forever by avoiding enemies, or speak useful words or be silent. Links to these amazing products and more can be found on the Scandinavian History Podcast Facebook page or on Twitter. If you haven't already, then please go to facebook.com slash Scandinavian History Podcast. Like and follow the page if you want to shop or if you just crave more content at least vaguely related to Scandinavian history. 
Via the Facebook page, you can also send me questions or angry messages about things I've said or not said on the show. If you prefer Twitter, then you can follow me and send me messages at Schenkman. That's S-H-A-I-N-K-M-A-N. I look forward to hearing from you.